do now RS5 and make it. Well, buddy, you ready? Huge. I think they'll give us a secret on that one. Okay, we'll go ahead. We, I'm sure a few people will wander in here, but we have a lot to cover. So why don't we get started? We have a few words before we start. Yes. Good afternoon. My name is Drew Bielby, planner, and I will be help, so helping to facilitate the Zoom video portion of the meeting. You'll work alongside um, the chair to facilitate the meeting proceedings. I have a few housekeeping items for this hybrid meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting when you are not speaking. The chat function for this public meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows active meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you are participating, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send a chat to me. The city reserves the right to mute or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. Now I'll turn the meeting back over to Thank you, Drew. Um, do we have anyone on Zoom? I can't. I haven't had anyone come in yet. Well, okay. Well, we're kind of like you on participation, but I'm sure we'll join in. But I know we've been getting some people joining some of our meetings, so yeah. I'll yeah. turn this over to Elizabeth and go from there. All right. Um, so let's pull up the PowerPoint and we'll get started. All right, let's do first slide. If you guys don't mind, I'm going to stand. We've been sitting talking to people all day. <laughs> Okay, if I'm out of range of the camera. Okay, so this evening, um, this afternoon, we're, we're going to back up to Plan 2040 a little bit um, because of where we left our conversation at our last meeting, and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, we're going to talk about edits to Module 1 that we made after the June meeting. And we're going to continue the Module 1 discussion to the extent that we need to um, talk about some of the public comment received to date. I moved this up. We're going to start with an overview Good. of what we've been hearing um, and then um, talk about some of the um, additional public outreach updates. So the next slide. So, so what have we been hearing? Um, we started yesterday um, at about 1.30. Um, we did three groups yesterday. Um, Two groups and a kind of open drop-in session today. We've had very good participation um, at our first meeting. The room was full. Um, so we estimated we had about 35 people show up for that neighborhood-focused um, meeting. Um, the others have been bigger or smaller, no less passionate. And um, we have a lot of people showing up to share their thoughts for the future of the community with us. So we've heard... Um, Pretty general support for expansion of ADU allowances. I'm gonna stop there and I'm gonna say, so we listen to a lot of very passionate people and we are hearing a piece of what the story is of Lawrence. And so as I share this with you, um, I want to ask you as our steering committee, what else we need to do to get some of the other voices included in this conversation early? because we don't want them showing up later and saying we hate ADUs and it's five minutes before the adoption hearing starts. So I'm gonna tell you what we've heard um, and then we'll talk again about what else we need to do to uh, garner more input. So expanding ADU allowances. Um, we've had discussion on both sides of an owner occupancy requirement 
for properties with ADUs. So that doesn't mean the owner has to live in the ADU. It means the owner has to live on site. And um, so that discussion um, is balanced between what do we think the neighborhood needs and that stability of full-time owner occupancy um, against, hey, if we do that and we're using ADUs as a housing option, are we providing all our housing options? Because that way only one unit on the site can be rented. So that um, we've heard support for expanded duplex allowances, um, but concern about the design of the structure, which follows where our steering committee was last time we talked about this. We've heard um, support for reduced parking requirements. This is where the public has jumped ahead of us. We have not drafted parking requirements. We haven't drafted them actually, but nobody's seen them. Mm -hmm. um, but um, except Brody and Gabby and I, um, but we have um, been asked to reduce minimum required parking and um, had some conversations about how communities get to parking standards and what does it mean um, and how does that work. Um, we've heard um, about a potential need to expand commercial allowances in the R3 residential district. Again, some of this aligns with where steering committee was. We're perhaps not mixing enough for the people we've talked to. Um, so that's sort of, you know, throw it all up. Let's see what comes out of it. Ooh, okay. okay. It was a funeral for a former city commissioner. Oh, Okay, next slide. Wow, that was putting off on my part. I apologize. Okay, we've heard this um, sort of, we started getting uh, an outline of um, how we're thinking about sustainability in the community and how that worked with um, this look at more development. And so what we heard as density increases, um, the value and desire for open space increases, and how does the code reflect this? Um, some of it was focused on um, downtown, but we also have started um, hearing conversation about what does future development look like in Lawrence. So not just thinking about what redevelopment might look like in town or in historic areas, but how are we thinking about new development as it comes in? And that follows our next bullet point. Um, we had a few people bring up a request for more specific development plans for annexation. So not necessarily specific plans on the city's part, but um, instead of um, moving property into urban reserve and waiting to see how it develops, asking for um, something that is going to be um, less um, spread out and more compact and walkable. Um, the, this piece of discussion came um, both from a sustainability group and from a housing group. And so the question is, how's the city thinking about um, development? Um, meeting with some, um, some representatives from downtown, um, we had a conversation about how the downtown plan is on point, but how do we encourage, incentivize um, the redevelopment that would be necessary to get more housing downtown, to get more people living downtown? Um, and then that ties back into a parking discussion about a minute and a half later. Um, we heard about 
how um, some of the, the I think it, it's not necessarily height restrictions, it's the um, historic um, and cultural resources environs um, regulations um, limit some of the development or redevelopment height downtown. And um, it's possible that in some areas um, that development just doesn't pencil out. So developers aren't doing it because they need a bigger envelope to make something work. We heard about, um, we heard about other people's fear of change. There are people in the community who have fear of change. It came up once or twice. I'm laughing at it. It's not funny. Fear of change is what it sends people in to tell us that the changes to the code aren't just work. So for us, that is something to um, circle in on and talk about uh, what are the dimensions of that and what do we need to understand about that? Um, and then um, pretty pragmatic comment about the need for more um, food sources. And so um, I think this is food sources in terms of um, food shopping I, um, and the farmer's market, not necessarily like being able to grow food um, could be, um, and development along the river. So the, that's a smattering of what we've heard. We'll write up notes and share them with everybody. Um, but we have had really thoughtful um, conversations and um, participants. We, all, we have taken a few of these off the um, draft that's on the website, and we are getting um, very detailed comments on the draft. And um, so, and it's not just us getting them. The draft has open comments on it. So if you haven't gone to look through it yet, you can see how people are commenting. So um, before I move on, um, I'll ask if anyone wants any more specificity about these or if you just want to let them kind of wash over you. You might go back to page one real quick. Yep. We had three or four people walk in, some of which have strong opinions, I think, about the first couple of months. It might... Let's start back at the top. So <laughs> what we've heard from our meetings over the last couple days. Um, so predominantly, and some of it echoes what we're seeing in the comments in the draft. So um, we've heard um, pretty unanimous support for um, expanding ADUs um, into um, most, and most residential neighborhoods. Any place where you could have um, single unit, two unit townhomes expand the ADUs there. We had a discussion, we've heard both sides of the discussion about owner occupancy requirements for properties that have ADUs. So does the owner have to live in one of the units? Um, can both units be um, rented? How does, how does that work? And in this conversation, I'll just add on from the first round, um, that sometimes what uh, jams up ADU regulations is, is that fear of change that we had on the last slide. Um, and it helps to take it in baby steps. So it helps to do um, the regulations you can get in place to start with and let them ride for a year or two and then expand them out, let them ride for a year or two and then start pulling out stuff that got in the way. And um, we've seen that in other communities. So by about year three or four, you know, they can say, hey, you know, this particular requirement that all entrances not be facing the front isn't really getting us anywhere. So we can maybe let that go. So that's something we can talk about. Um, okay, so we heard support for expanded duplex allowances, but like we talked about um, definite concerns about the design of the structure. Um, what we didn't 
uh, bring up with the general public was based on your instruction. We're working on a photograph book or a pattern book of the different types of development that we'll be able to share out um, and let people know that we can um, tailor uh, some of the um, design standards within the um, updated code in the second module. Um, let's see, we heard um, support for reducing parking requirements and um, we haven't have not shared any parking requirements with anybody. Um, Except for the ADUs, where there is a specific thing for ADUs on parking requirements. Okay, except on ADUs. Yeah. Um, but in general, we, um, we heard reduce, um, consider eliminating, consider letting the market decide what it's going to be. Um, we play devil's advocate with that on occasion um, and talked about what is our biggest challenge in code writing with reducing parking requirements, and that's typically multi-unit development apartments. Um, we, um, we realize that almost all apartment residents have at least one car. Um, if you're doing multiple roommates, you've got more cars than that. Um, lots of bikes storage problems, bike storage problems. And so, um, but we'll talk about this in module two. We brought it up because we wanted to let you know that this was one of its own like self-leading ideas that we hadn't flagged for anybody, but it's definitely out there. Nick, are you behind that? Hmm? Huh? Oh, are you sorry. reading this into the community right now? No, I, I, <laughs> no I'm, I'm actually surprised to see it, frankly. Um, and same for the first one, support for expanded ADU allowances. Based on my limited understanding of the history of ADUs in Lawrence, that is a, that's a change um, for what I would consider the better, but that's just my view. Yeah, and so one of the things that I said early on was we had some, we've had some pretty passionate people and some people that have um, kind of dug in and brought us some of their thoughts about um, what we need to do within the code. And so it is It is an excellent conversation, um, but it is likely missing part of the community. And um, the part of the community that we want to hear from early on. So one of the questions that we're going to put back to the group is, um, you know, do we want to send out postcards? Do we want to send out flyers? Do we want to tell people we're taking away all parking requirements and they will show up for a meeting once we say that? <laughs> Yes. Yeah, that was actually exactly the segue I was hoping to hear eventually, which is you've been through the story many times before. We have not. So at this point, we're seeing just a limited sampling of who's showing up. It's probably people who are interested in kind of the wonky policy aspects of it or really urbanist, you know, proud. But there's probably a lot of people who just are going about their lives, don't really care. And then once it hits them, like you're saying, you know, once a development comes up that there's like, well, the zoning code says we don't need parking. We're not going to do parking. Then the pitchforks come out. And how often do you see that? The best of intentions are followed early on in the process, but you know the people who oppose stuff don't show up until way, way later. Is that pretty normal? It is. Um, it is typical, and it's not a pattern that we want to work with. Yeah. Um, and so, in the same way, we've been flagging for for you guys. Hey, we're allowing duplexes everywhere in this code, and um, we're you know like ADUs everywhere. We've been telling every group we talk to that those changes are in there with the hope that it will filter out into the community. Hmm. Um, but because we want to draw that conversation early to find our, our points of agreement and our points of contention, um, we're probably going to do some more um, emailings and probably postcards and do something to let people know this is going on. So we won't find agreement on a lot of things, but we can find good conversation on a lot of things. And that's where we're going to go. Did you want to say something? Well, I just wanted to add, when you talk about expanded duplex allowances, that there was a comment 
that duplexes designed for students may be different than duplexes designed for families. So um, do we want to recognize that that's a very different kind of development if you're trying to put in four bedrooms for four students versus a family? Um, I don't know that you mentioned the issue of covenants. And getting, we're getting, okay. Yeah, glad you said that. And so I'll let you, I'll let you get there. Um, the other one, and a comment that you made during your presentation that I thought was particularly important was when you talked about commercial, you know, adding commercial, which I think everyone is interested in. Um, you talked about the hours that commercial would be open because it's very different to have a um, neighborhood um, barbershop that closes at seven at night than it is to have a bar that closes at 2 p.m. So how do we um, recognize that commercial can be very different in terms of those hours? So it's, and I think that I think that you're like you're a step forward um, in a good way because that's part of like tailoring the right thing to the right location. We didn't get that far in the conversations today, but as as we're talking, that's part of place we're going to need to go. We actually had that particular conversation about downtown. Uh, because we were asking our downtown group, hey, what if we um, lift the 45% other merchandise or whatever restriction and open up to more alcohol uses in more places? And there are downtown business centers who are concerned that that would be bad for downtown. It would it would switch more of those businesses into um, um, bars and remove some of the retail balance that's going on there. So that's kind of how we've been going with that. So on the covenant thing, it didn't make it onto our list, but I, I will explain. As we've been having this conversation about allowing more types of housing in more locations, um, there's a sort of a recognition or and a concern that there are neighborhoods in the city that have deed restrictions and covenants on them in which those unit types won't be allowed. Um, so even if Lawrence's code says you can have ADUs or you can have duplexes, if um, the subdivision has covenants on it, or if it's a planned development with um, covenants that say, no, you can't, that overrides. And so the concern is that there are a number of neighborhoods where those changes wouldn't be made. Would that force change back into older neighborhoods or historic neighborhoods or uncovenanted neighborhoods, how would that like, you know, where would the water flow? And what does that mean um, in, in terms of implementing the plan? Because, you know, part of the plan is dispersing and making uh, different housing types available in a lot of different locations. So are we inadvertently uh, putting pressure on the system by allowing this? So um, Becky shared with me um, a memo that staff has put together on covenants. I haven't had a chance to look through it yet, um, but I think that's going to need to be a part of our conversation. Um, the other piece of our conversation that started coming up and is timely is, hey, what incentives are we going to offer um, to get to X development or Y development? And um, how are those incentives meaningful? So we may want something to happen that we might not want to regulate to that end. Let's take um, something that came up, solar panels. 
right? It, it could be a little challenging. We could get pushed back if we say everyone's going to have solar panels, all new development. Again, Tesla roof, if we could do it, right? And we're going to hear, you know, that that is a significant um, add to the cost of development, um, that, you know, storage uh, for solar panels is going to be super expensive right now. Technology is changing all the time. Um, but we might want to incentivize it. Um, we certainly want to make it easier to do it if people want to do it. So we have some categories that will come across as we're drafting a make it easy to do, make it interesting to do, or make it required to do. Where do we want to land on some of these things? So that's been part of our conversation, which um, is pretty good timing to start thinking about that as we start doing this. The questions about these, yeah. As we get into the covenant issue, it might be helpful if staff had the ability to kind of identify neighborhoods or plan developments that actually have those in place. Because it, I know for me, it would help evaluate what's going to happen around that area. Because what you said, basically, people with respect to covenants through a homeowners association or something, we're going to see there areas become even more exclusive and, and watch yeah. you know, increased development in other places. So we, we do see um, that ADUs on the whole raise property values. Um, so that's a net positive. I would ask um, before promising anything, I'm going to look at Jeff and Becky. Is that possible? Um, that may not be information that this keeps. It's not. It's not. It's not information the city keeps. We tried to undertake that about year, maybe a year and a half ago, and we realized it would probably take a team the better part of a year to go through and pull them all. Mm -hmm. So we didn't continue. We just didn't have the resources. And we asked about that. Well, and the so kind of put, covenants would be vastly different. So to put Becky on the spot, there is some sort of staff memo regarding covenants. Yes, it was a memo that was provided to the city commission. We can forward that. I'll take it's, it's about legal. And essentially what it's going to say is that it's going to say that staff that city doesn't enforce covenants. Covenants just a covenant just gives a right of action to someone else that's in that covenanting area, and that's what makes covenants interesting. Is they're not bulletproof. They just give somebody that doesn't like what you're doing. It gives them a right of action to go to the courthouse. But I mean, this country has a long history of covenants. You know, some covenants say that you know you you can't have a chain link fence, and other covenants say someone of some certain race or ethnicity can't live next door to you. And so covenants aren't bulletproof. They can be pushed through. And I would also, just for laughs, point out that, you know, times have changed and these covenants were made in a day before we found ourselves, you know, with a housing shortage in Lawrence. And if somebody in an area that has a restrictive covenants against an ADU decided to go ahead and punch it and come down and get a permit from Jeff and say, I'm going to do it. And then a neighbor said, no, you're not, and filed suit, the city, I believe the city could weigh in as a third-party intervener and say, you know, times have changed. And we believe that this covenant, we believe it's not for the good of the community. We believe that it should not be enforceable. And the city could put skin in the game. They could actually weigh into that litigation and start to try to turn the tide because otherwise this holistic project of ours to try to make you know density available across the city, it really is going to keep flowing back into older neighborhoods because 
you know, we have these things that may or may not be enforceable on, you know, these covenants. I don't know that that's necessarily true that it's going to flow into older neighborhoods because there are a lot of older neighborhoods in Lawrence that have covenants. Yeah. Right. And, and they're very, I mean, they're not, not all covenants are the same. The covenants you see out on the West side of town and newer developments aren't necessarily the same kind of restrictions you see in neighborhoods around the university or some of the other, some of the older neighborhoods in town. But I think there are a lot more covenants in Lawrence than we realize. And, and it's not all just newer development. And the thing is, is those covenants, you know, you could look around because remember, you can't enforce covenants piecemeal. They have to be enforced universally. So if somebody, you know, imagine somebody, their neighbor wants to build an ADU and that somebody decides I'm, I'm going to sue them. But that same property owner has a neighbor that's across the street or one house down that's had a, essentially an ADU sitting there for 10 years right there. That would be that's not a bar. necessarily true anymore either because common ownership interest bill of rights gives HOAs a lot of but remember there's a lot to fight there. Yeah, I can I can say a lot too. But I also say, like you said, the other hard part when we looked at this, you know, some some say you can't have an ADU, some say you can't rent, some say you can't have an outbuilding. Some say you can't have a, you know, and so again, what someone used in a particular case to try to stop something, and some might allow it if it's attached, some might not allow it. I mean, there's all sorts of variables that I think would be on a case-by-case basis, but I, I, we've tried, and it'd be very difficult, but it's something to certainly consider. Um, but, so I guess I'd say on the big picture, I, I mean, I would agree with what you were saying. I mean, most of the people who talk to me about the development code want these sorts of changes. They want density, they're concerned about the environment, they're concerned about affordable housing. Those are the ones paying attention. Um, the other group of people say, I don't care much about the code until it affects me. <laughs> and so um, those are the ones we have to try to get out in front of and see, you know, they're not thinking about it yet, but what do they think about an ADU next to them? What do they think about the good for the community? Um, I think more than, I mean, what I hear more people than five years ago like the idea of ADUs that didn't like them five years ago. People who didn't like density five, 10 years ago like density now, not universally, but it's there's definitely a shift. I don't know how far that shift has come and how far, how wide that is, but that's what we have to try to continue to gauge as we move through this process. Some questions over and the, the biggest concern or fear I have heard thus far on those that are afraid of density or change is property values. And I feel like there's an absolute wealth of knowledge that maybe we could hit that off with some education because in general, 30 years of studies have said affordable housing in particular or higher density or what we associate ADUs do not reduce property values. Very seldomly do, and especially in our market. Um, so that might be a, a good piece of education with this. I, I agree. I'm thinking about another community that we were talking to um, and uh, Colorado um, Broomfield, if you're familiar, they've been working on a housing facts um, information campaign along those lines. Um, 
they started out calling it housing myths and they realized they were on the wrong path. So they switched mm -hmm. back. So yeah. we can figure out, you know, three or four important things we want to say um, and do an educational example. Okay. Okay. All right. So, so we're, we're in, so I feel like we're sort of in agreement. Like we think we're hearing the people who are really on top of this because there are changes they want to see probably others in the community who aren't with us yet. We may not be with us until later. Um, and, our kind of, you know, story to ourselves is some of them won't be with us until it's fully drafted. And they realize that we're actually serious about doing this, which is why we left a little time at the end. Um, to Just to add to that, the time of your meetings impacts who can show up and have comment too. Yeah. Because people are people. They're going to do their thing. <clears throat> okay. So let's go talk about a few other things here. So go down one slide, next slide. Okay, so last time we were here, um, as a group, you gave us really good guidance about taking the draft that we've done for module one and going further with it. So we made some of those changes within kind of the week, week and a half um, between that meeting and when we posted. We still have a few smaller changes to make within there and to make it all make sense. But we wanted to back up to plan 2040 um, and see if there's, Anything in terms of implementing the plan that makes you think there are additional changes to this module um, that make it more fully implement the plan? So let me show you what I'm talking about. Let's go to the next slide. Okay, so um, everyone probably has seen the tier map. And so tier one um, in blue, um, or um, if you are blue, green, colorblind, it's in the middle here. Um, where it says tier one, that's the giveaway. Um, so this is within Lawrence and our instruction from the plan, our goal is to maximize development opportunities within tier one before expanding to tier two. So tier two in the green around the edges, that's Lawrence's growth area. And then tier three in the beige is future growth area. So, um, I believe tiers two and three are both still in Douglas County, correct? Only within um, the, the teal color here. That looks like Carolina blue. Who did this? <laughs> just, I'm just saying. Thanks, Joe. Okay. Joe has um, Yeah. So, so this is where we're focusing ourselves. The plan tells us to focus ourselves there. So let's go to the next slide. So the plan gives us these five. Uh, ranges of residential density. So this is some of what we were talking about as we were looking through the draft. Um, and it says, encourage integration of higher density residential development through compatible design. Um, so we've got three things going on. Um, if we take the sentence apart and diagram it, it's encourage integration, higher density residential development, compatible design. And um, at this range of densities. So, um, I believe the rural density is out in the county. I think very low might be out in the county, and I can't remember off the top of my head. It would correspond to RS40 in the city. Okay, so that's the, which will be R1 now. Okay. Um, and so then we get the low, medium, high, and very high. So um, based on our Marcy's instruction, we made the correction. So it's clear where your cutoff is in there. Thank you. Um, but so... The, the rest of our um, question here is, these are pretty broad ranges. 
And we've set up the zone districts to kind of capture those pretty broad ranges. When we think about making change um, along these lines, if we have broad density ranges and we have compatible design standards, do we think that we can bring the communities, the neighborhoods who might be living with change um, to a comfortable place? And so one of the things that we did last time was we talked about creating some opportunities for small lot development and limiting um, some sorts of residential units to three as a max, because that might be the most that we want to see on a lot for infill um, in some areas. And I know I'm asking kind of a pretty wide open question, but I'm, I'm wondering if people signed off on this in the plan, are they going to remember that when we come back to them with the zone districts and say, yeah, we said we were doing this. This is what it looks like in the zone districts. Um, do you think that some of our bigger conversation around this needs to actually hit all three um, of the plan goal ideas? So integration, higher density, and compatible design. Should we um, go easy on this conversation until we also have the design standards in, which is some of the fear we were hearing from people? Um, you know, so what concerned you guys when you read through the districts and uses? What do you think might concern neighborhoods, neighbors, people who are um, have not voluntarily immersed themselves in this discussion? I think I may have brought this up in the last meeting, and I know we definitely hammered it quite a bit more than it needed to be, but the pictures that are shown tend to show things that are on large lots rather than individual small lots. And I think lot consolidation is, is problematic for a lot of people, whether it be the size and the scale of a thing, even if it's the same density as a smaller lot, or even just something more abstract, like the concentration of wealth, right? Like if one person owns all this crap versus like 10 different people owning stuff in a row, I think that's maybe a little bit more palatable. <laughs> folks. So that's why I think one of my suggestions was it, it, it's still good to show a big building because that's what most of them do look like. But it'd be nice to maybe show like if we weren't doing Greenfield, what would it look like? We would probably have these small lots with maybe like, you know, smaller four-story apartment buildings on a 50-foot wide lot. Okay. So, <clears throat> and maybe I'm interpreting this, but I'm hearing you say it's good to actually look at what the structures might look like where we'll go with the photographs instead of the graphics. I think the graphics are still good because they're, they're kind of conceptual and they don't, you know, super tie into any particular building. Like, oh, I don't want that exact thing in my community. But I think showing the different ends of it in, in terms of like, these are both the same density, but they are in different lot sizes and they might not be in the exact same neighborhoods. So helping people envision. Do you think um, a, a plan view of a subdivision layout helps anybody or is that not easy to understand without actually the proportion of the unit on it? I don't think it would hurt. I mean, a lot of people are familiar with maps, so it should be okay. People in my world are. I don't know about the rest of the world. Yeah. Sure. So Google Maps sent me to um, a vacated section of Missouri Street today. Why? Why? Mm. This is a Google Map problem. It's not a Lawrence problem, but it was, I wasn't like being sent into like the Mojave Desert. No, it's just a vacated road. <laughs> okay. Um, so there, is there, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say the thing that I think Nick commented on that's interesting is, you know, right now, Lawrence has a significant proportion of rental property yes. and rental ownership. So how do we make sure that there's also the opportunity for home ownership, be it townhouses, be it condos? Because I think, you know, 
as we learn, you know, people's opportunity for investment um, and to help that is often through their home. And so the more we go towards developments that don't allow for that individual ownership, the less opportunity there is um, for families to um, create their own um, for a lot equity. of people to get into that equity yeah. game, into the um, place on the um, property ladder. It's so, um, to me, it's interesting you are the third person today who has said that your home is your biggest investment. And I wonder how that's resonating to people who are thinking about this code and what it could do. So um, that kind of ties back to where we were about how this isn't um, decreasing your property value, but also kind of thinking about who we are. I'm getting super philosophical. Uh, I mean, I would say that <clears throat> since Plan 2040 has come around, I, I've had very few people argue that they don't like putting aside the, the new land in infill, but that they, you know, they don't support the ideas of plan 2040. Okay. When it comes to a project in their neighborhood, you know, they they might object. Or if you if you ask them the question, do you support density, increased density, yes. Do I do you support density on your block? Not so much. Um, I mean that's where I think so I'm not sure we can I, I don't know how to drive that that conversation. So that's the next set of um, mapping that we're going to get to. And we haven't put up the um, conversion maps yet um, because I still need to um, edit the text a little bit. But the second round of mapping that we're doing is um, the density of Lawrence's neighborhoods. So when we say it can be 16 to 32, you can go look and have a personal reference, like, oh, I'm familiar with this neighborhood and that's what the density is. Oh, so, yeah, we're, we're trying to make that less abstract, more concrete. Okay, so we're, we're staying on path with this one, um, knowing where we're going. Let's do the next slide. Okay, so we'll move into commercial. We have spent a lot of time on residential. Um, let's talk commercial for a minute. Um, and so, the goal from Plan 2040 is encourage the retention and redevelopment of the community's established commercial areas. And so you can see we took these commercial types um, out of the plan and they're reflected in the um, three layers of um, mixed neighbor of mixed zoning. Um, and then uh, downtown has kept its own status. But so that's kind of where we've been going with these roll-ups. And um, we're not hearing a lot about commercial. Um, do you think um, that could be because commercials work in pretty well um, in Lawrence? Do we want to um, see redevelopment of anything that we're not seeing redevelopment of? Um, does that fall into our you know, incentives category? How do we jumpstart some of this? Or, really is focusing on residential and thinking about the housing market as is one of our more important tasks uh, right now on this um, code change. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say they're both pretty important, especially because of all these mixed use districts, they're gonna be pretty equal at some point. Um, this is my theory, so feel free to push back on this. This is, this is 
way off, but the vast majority of people alive today who are active in politics or civic anything have only ever known two different types of of commercial development. Big box stores in the burbs where you got to drive to and quaint, historical, beautiful, fun downtowns. And pretty much every Western town or city of any size has a downtown of some sort. In some places, they look kind of rough. In some places, they're a lot of fun, like Lawrence. But that's kind of the only two commercial things that most people have ever seen in this country. You'd have to go back to like the greatest generation to know people who actually knew when there were seven grocery stores in East Lawrence. It's just not in living memory anymore. So I think people may just not be able to grasp what this could look like. It's it's pretty uh, foreign, especially if you haven't been outside the, the area very much. So I almost wonder if the sheer lack of knowledge is contributing to the lack of input as well. This lines up with what our chairman was saying earlier. It's fine in theory, but until you want to put one in my neighborhood. Yeah. What happened to the seven grocery store buildings? They're all just single family homes or duplexes now. Like you can tell which ones are which because they have an odd corner entrance, but they're all over the place. That made me feel really old. I remember. <laughs> I didn't mean to refer to you as the greatest generation. I was a lot further back, frankly. It's, it, I, think it's, I think it's more than I think it's more than just uh, that the people don't remember. I think there's a reason why it it, it evolved the way it did. Uh -huh. And an example, we have a commercial building in in Old East Florence that would be a ideal place for a small grocery store. I can't find anyone who would even give consideration to doing that. People in the business say you there's no possible way you can make that a viable store. I've been to other communities where I've seen that a same size footprint of grocery store working all over Denver, small little neighborhoods where that exists. But something about the makeup of where we are, just that on its own in an island, people in the it has to do with walkability, you know, because I've lived in 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 downtown Chicago and essentially everywhere in LA is downtown. But those those communities are walkable. You know, in fact, there's there's an incentive not to get in your car. It's like, hey, I had to work for a half hour just to find the illegal parking spot that I have. And so, you know, you're on foot. And so where there's a disincentive to get in that car, then suddenly you're willing to walk all over the place. But where it's just so easy to go to a big box grocery store, there's plentiful parking and it's free parking. You know, I mean, it's just these are. There are places where you can't even park at the grocery store unless, you know, without paying. So it's just that's not things that are part of our reality here. So I think there's lots of people, to Nick's point, that in Lawrence that have traveled around. You've traveled extensively, lived extensively. You know, but then there's people that haven't. So I think that there's people here that could that could say it, it actually works. It's really cool. But there are some – it's just baked into the system. Just – Using the car is just what we do in the Midwest, unfortunately. But to the point about needing some incentive to make mixed-use environments work, that might be the thing. It takes a critical mass. It takes more than just this thing for it to happen. Combination of things. Probably need a lot more density like we had back in the day. Well, I was just going to add that it's both walkability and density, sort of. So you, you have to have them both. And, and until we can increase the density then those little grocery stores aren't going to make it because I was involved with trying to, you know, save the one in East Lawrence and we shopped it. I'm trying to remember it was on 23rd street, you know, and they gave us a deal, but there's no way that a grocery store can make it with the number amount of sales, unless there's that density around them to be able to walk to. So 
Yeah. Oh, that's right now. But I'd also add on the bigger, not just the neighborhood scale, you know, when we created the mixed use district, this even before Jeff was here, we did these charrettes about, hey, we're going to, this is what 15th and Haskell is going to look like. This is what the malls is going to look like. And we have these drawings of mixed use and residential and all this. We're going to redo the malls. We're going to read. And of course, none of it ever happened. Um, but I do think the smoke code, yeah, smoke code, mixed use code. You know, I, I still think with the demand for housing now, I think we have, and, and a right code that allows some of that. I think you have a much better chance, for example, with someone to say, I'm ready to do something with the malls, the whole area. I'm ready to do something with 19th and Haskell. Um, you know, so I, I, whether or not it happens, if we have to incentivize it, I don't know, but it's still a goal of, of allowing that mixed use in all our commercial districts. And that's where I believe that the annexation should go straight to mixed use. So instead of urban re reserve, because if you and say that this new property is going to be mixed use, and then if you want something different, you have to petition to. Yeah, so that is, um, that is like zoning grad school level, so like 706 zoning, something like that. Um, so my, my first question I'm going to ask um, Becky and Jeff totally unfairly. We do urban reserve because um, that allows the maximum amount of time before someone has to start paying to put facilities um, at the lowest level. Would there be an expense to um, doing something like saying, hey, you know, you need to come in as a mixed-use district, and that's what you need to provide services for. I don't know if there's a direct expense. The only reason Urban Reserve exists is because in Article 1, it says upon annexation, either the applicant or the city commission shall move you to a zoning district, and the applicant can choose to go directly to a district, but if they don't, the city commission shall initiate amendment and move you to UR. I don't think that necessarily has an implication because most of the time, if you get put into a district, you're not doing any development. You just you just sit ready. It, mm -hmm. there, I can think of different bits of more over the years that probably sat as a, a R2 or a, probably a commercial district. I can't think of off the top of my head. And it's just been sitting in that capacity for years. Improvements and all that would come with development, not necessarily with zoning. The thing I don't know is if the appraiser's office would tax differently based on it, but I don't think they would because it's there is no physics. Based on use. Based on use. Yeah. As long as you're farming it. Yeah, as long as you're, you're blank land, you're blank land, they're just going to react in that way. So I can't think of anything else that would necessarily run into that. We've got instances all over town of both things being in UR for a long time or being in commercial and residential for a long time. So it's really a little bit of applicant's decision or code compelling the UR being applied. And just for the rest of the story, um, I, I think I understand correctly, the city's kind of at an agreement place with the county about what stays in the county, what comes into the city. Um, and that goes go back through to the um, your map. So if my, I guess my other question, just a practical question is if we have someone come in and, and the, the way we've done this is say, you know, 
is it, it's going to be you pick three. Pick three zoning districts. Only one of them can be single-family residential. Everything else has to be something else. And tell us what it's going to be over time. Do we have, do we have or what would it cost um, just all park to get the infrastructure for something like that out to the growth area? Um, and it, is there a benefit in terms of where Plan 2040 is and doing that? You know, in some areas, the cost, we worked with MSA to get to those areas, but the, the tier two area was based upon a, a number of things. The, the short version of a long answer is it was based on where fire could reach, where the utilities were readily available, and what was within the, the land radius for travel times of the street network that we had at that point. So that was kind of where we thought the reach was, given our conversation with utilities and public works at the time. Might be open to exploring the conversation that we take a more mixed-use approach to annexations that come in from tier two. Would that be something we, I'm not asking, you can sit and smile at me like, yeah, that's a consultant, whatever she's talking about over there. <laughs> Is that a conversation the group would like to have? Is this important in the scheme of things? Is that going to be part of module three processes and stuff, or does yes. it come in early? Okay. It, it would have a process component to it, but we would want to start looking at our zone district lineup to kind of see what, um, what would be appropriate in those areas based on what else is going on out there. Um, I guess... This may not be the appropriate time, so stop me if it's if this is like way not um, you know not timed well. But um, you know, for a while there's been this whole thing of the community benefit needs to be demonstrated before you can annex into the community, and that was I don't know if, I forget if that was intentionally left kind of vague because it was going to be hammered out later or not. But I think there's been a lot of discussion on what is a community benefit, and because it's so subjective and qualitative, it's kind of hard to say with any authority what is and what isn't right because depending on your perspective. Huh? Um, one of the, the things that I've been tossing around is based on know, how many of you all are familiar with strong towns, urban three, the kind of places that really <clears throat> try to do the map on what it costs to serve an area and what that area brings in in taxes. Generally speaking, newer suburban areas that are kind of less dense don't really pay for themselves in terms of property tax that they bring in versus the amount it takes to build, maintain, and replace their infrastructure. So because of that, they end up being kind of a financial train on the city. And there's been a lot of these visual maps kind of showing what different cities look like and it's always the exact same it's like downtown historic or older neighborhoods are always generally revenue generating and further out neighborhoods that are perceived as pretty wealthy turned out to actually be a drag on the community based on how much they require in services and how little they bring in so what i would propose just throwing it out there is do the map on, on any new annexation would the proposed level of intensity of development and types of uses bring in the amount of property tax that would be required to maintain it over at least one life cycle of infrastructure. Um, I believe that we have enough information from MSO that we could actually calculate that. Um, there's been a lot of building all over the city. Certainly we have some kind of numbers for lane miles, road, linear feet of pipe, fire hydrants, et cetera. And then you could probably pretty easily talk to the appraiser's office and get calculations of what it would cost or what they would raise in property taxes based on comps. So I feel like it could be done. We have the information, we have GIS specialists. That would at least be a quantitative way that you can argue on actual data and, you know, and assumptions instead of saying like, well, I believe that more housing in general is beneficial use. Like, well, who are you? Right. So that's, that's my kind of uh, engineering approach. Daniel and I are trying to think about what to say here. <laughs> There's been a lot of that. Um, I mean, we've, we've had 
discussions. We've had discussions of spending money to figure those out. Again, the answers are all math dependent. I mean, you make that calculation on a $400,000 house with this much linear foot, and then it sells for 500000 it just changed. Mm -hmm. Did it pay for itself yesterday? Did it pay for itself today? Did it, if it drops to 300000 you add an ADU. So it's not as useful in long-term planning mm -hmm. because it has so many variables related to that. But so what we ended up saying is we all agree that the denser it is, the more taxes you'll pay, and that's a good thing. Therefore, Plan 2040 says that. And so, I mean, I do think that is kind of baked into Plan 2040, that idea is there. Um, but there's no backstop to tell whether it's going to be a net drain or a benefit to the economy, right? I mean, there's no quantitative like, oh, yeah, we can tell. That's what I said. We've, yeah. I mean, we talked about doing $100,000, paying somebody $100,000 to do that study. Yeah. And they said... We can do that, and you'll last about, you'll be out of date by the time we finish that study, and then you can pay us $50,000 a year to update it every year, and we decided we didn't want to do that. But but I hear what you're saying. It's been a, it's a long discussion, but I don't know that that drives it. Second thing is lots of debate about if you're only looking at property taxes, and how do you factor in sales tax? Mm -hmm. How do you factor in what the person is, you know, that person buys a car in Lawrence, they just paid for their, you know, their, their street for a long, you know, for a longer period of time than the person who bought the car in Olathe versus the person who didn't buy the car. How do you quantify that person's buying habits? And so there's a lot of mm -hmm. factors that go into that. So I hear what you're saying. I, 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 I like strong towns. I understand the concept, but I'm not, we've had that discussion so far. We've never gone that route. I'm not sure we do it here. Is, is the other question one that you could say, oh, this is going to pay for itself because we're including a certain amount of commercial, but there's only so many dollars that are being spent by the people in Lawrence. So adding commercial one place may take away dollars from another place. So, um, you know, and that's why industrial and business is so important because you have an industry and if they're selling outside the community, that really is money coming in. But if you, if you're adding commercial, there's only so many lattes we're going to buy or no, there's, there's cars. There's no limit on that. <laughs> <laughs> but back to your question. The point is important. Yeah. I, I, yeah. But, I guess I'm back to your original question. The suggestion that when annexed automatically comes in as some zoning district. It comes in as an urban reserve. I know, I know that now, but yeah, so the question is the questions that have been brought up is should it come in as mixed development of some sort? And I think what we're sorting out is, and I'm gonna look at you because you carried the water on this one. What is what are we looking for? By doing that, yeah. we're looking at density. We but I'm getting, I mean, are you saying that someone can't ask for something else? Or if they don't ask, it has to be, instead of urban reserve, if they don't ask for anything, it just has to be mixed use. Mixed use. They come in as mixed use. And if they want something different, then they have to go argue that it is beneficial. Because 
We're trying to get bigger density. Well, under the, I mean, I guess what I'm, I'm thinking, thinking more procedurally, under the current code, if someone wants to annex and ask for commercial, they can. If they want to annex and ask for its two two agenda items, I want to annex, and then I go and reserve, right? If they don't ask. My question is, are you saying you don't want them to be able to ask for anything else? Or if they don't ask for anything, they have to be? They just, if they don't ask, it goes into mixed. Okay, thanks. Let's say M1. If, if the default would be M1, unless they ask for something else. I, I would so, say there that, that one of the things is that if you say it's going to be M1, you're, you're giving the signal and making the expectation of density. That's what we want. Okay. So, you're, you're sending a signal to the development community that this is what we want. So are we, are we talking about creating sort of a presumption then that in one or, or mixed use is in and of itself a community benefit? And if you want something different than that, you have to argue for what your That's community what benefit I would is. like to see. So. so if we look at the map, do we want density at the edges or do we want density in pockets? Um, you know, I mean, certainly downtown, it's great because it's dense. Um, you know, we want some density and we have some density near the university. Um, how do we create pockets rather than a circle of density? I think that's a, that's a fair question. Um, uh, I just, just to be devil's advocate, um, and I'm not gonna ask you this one because it's not fair, you're bringing the question forward, but, is is um, is mixed use what everyone in the community would want to see? And maybe that's incorrect. We're not going to get to everyone, but you know, are, are there places where there are still going to be people who prefer to live on that larger lot development, and that's where some new that new development should go? Purposefully not making this your question, so you can answer it. <laughs> You know, I, the way I'm looking at it is we cannot do infill and create the housing that we need. It's not happening here. It, it can't. So annexation has to happen. If we don't include that as, as a goal, as mixed use and more dense, it won't be. <laughs> okay, so why, why are you saying it can't happen if you go along... Um, Kentucky Street. I'm not saying that. No, but I'm just saying we're seeing replacement of current development with some really nice looking. And how many permits were pulled last year? 79. Yeah. Well, but that's, that's still a true statement, though. There, there is some of that. And, and how do you factor in ADUs by right? Doesn't that allow for density? The demand right now is far greater than what would be for an ADU. So what is there a different conversation? And um, can we go through to the residential and not have the um, density yet? Um, I think that um, <coughs> the things I want to ask of you all as a group is do we, do we think the city can support that much more commercial? I think that would be one of the questions. And I, I think that um, we definitely don't want to um, sort of cannibalize the existing commercial with new 
spaces um, that would come in cheaper. Um, is it instead of a mixed use question, is it a is it a medium density question? So you don't necessarily have to put the commercial out there, but you can't do residential large lot. What do you think, One of the things I didn't mention earlier is all that area in tier two was already given future land use under one of the area or sector plans. So it has designations for density and expectations to it. Mm -hmm. Now, those are all tied to old code or old things there. But there are areas that would be maybe put in as low or put in as industrial or put in as high, depending upon the different sector plans. So there, there is a little bit of those things that may enter into that discussion. I didn't want to to go too far without interjecting that bit of knowledge for the group's consideration. And what my vision would be was that we're not looking at creating a second downtown in an annex area or a, a, a large commercial area. I'm thinking more the small, the smaller, the neighborhood, like a law firm or something like that, you know, some commercial, um, the barbershops or, you know, whatever, grocery stores, small grocery stores, if you can find them. Most, most of what I've heard over the years about commercial is why do we need more when we have so many empty commercial properties now? Or I wish I had this one particular store here. So we let's build something new so we can possibly get that one particular store or the third is it's a grocery store. Those are the ones that come up the most that are about commercial for the most part. Because you'll hear comments, what about 31st in Iowa? We got giant empty restaurants there. Um, but part of that's tied to the restrictions because it's on Home Depot property that nobody can do anything that competes with sales of Home Depot there. Everything under the sun these days. <laughs> yes, which is why they sit empty. Other restaurants can't make it. But and and Menard still has outlots they haven't sold for commercial. And yet we talk about expanding more commercial areas. But in the common perception of people that don't follow everything, it's like there are empty buildings everywhere that are being used. Uh, for commercial, so why do we need more? Let's take let's take two last comments. I and I don't think we're going to resolve this. But I think everyone sees the contours of this conversation. So we take two last comments, and can I shelve this one and bring it back at our next meeting? Okay. To the question you asked a while ago, is there? I'll say it a little bit differently. Is there a market for a need for something other than than mixed use? Are there? Is there a market appetite a need for? Uh, neighborhood with larger lots. I think yes, there is, and I would hope that as we we go about this, that we don't try to get at one by just outlawing the other. That there's a way to get at both without the bar being so high that we can't address that market. That's, that's usually not everybody likes to live the same way, so it's something that we try to keep in mind. All right. Did you want to say something? Yeah, I guess now I have two comments. Uh, so the issue with the commercial emptiness, I know what you mean, and I, I feel like the optics are bad, right? Like there's a lot of empty empty stores, empty storefronts, empty big blocks. I feel like it's sort of an issue of poorly allocated supply and poor spatial distribution of stuff, right? Like all the really cool walkable stuff is all on one street in downtown, far across the city from everybody else. So stuff that could be walkable and of interest to folks in Wakaroos and, and 6th Street isn't really allowed to be built there because the CD district is pretty restrictive and both spatially and, you know, so that it's like, yeah, there are probably some empty spaces downtown because we're expecting everybody to go to the same place 
for this kind of commercial thing instead of splitting it up like other cities do, right? And then with the case of big box stores, that's a, a very specific kind of, of retail. And we are very likely overdone in that, but that's not to say that we're, that we're over retail or over commercialized with other smaller scale things that might be more amenable to small businesses instead of having to rely on a national chain, right? I think in the case of, it's almost like if you look at the car market right now, there's no such thing as a new car like under 30,000 anymore. It doesn't really exist. There's a ton of demand for it, but they can't really be built based on how the regulations kind of steer people towards larger cars like trucks and SUVs. So at this point, the regulations have steered us towards small downtown commercial and huge big box, not really serving the entire market. So I think it's kind of unfair to say that, uh, you know, commercial is never going to work. It's over commercialized. Well, not the way we've turned like, done it. But if we were to ease up on regulations and allow what the market may actually demand, then we might see a very different uh, landscape, I think. Okay, that's our last word. <laughs> I, I want to jump okay. way <laughs> back. Uh, I just want to jump way back to about um, community benefit. Yeah. It was left squishy with the intent that it will be solidified in this process. Mm. We were all very naive to think we would have gotten to this process sooner than we did if, instead of just starting it three years after it was put in place, which is why it's causing everybody conniptions um, because it was left that way because that was, that was the biggest bone of contention in the entire plan mm -hmm. about what that might mean. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I have to say, I'm one of the ones that was a little bit naive. I thought we would have been here sooner. Um, so now we're fighting about is our houses by themselves a community benefit, which sucks. Yeah, is it, it? I think it's a more nuanced question. Even our houses by themselves in this market, a community benefit. You know, 15 years ago we were all said it's just something that happened. It's not a community benefit. But now that we've gone this long in a um, you know a definitely underbuilt housing market, it feels like it is um, something that we would all benefit from. Part of what we're trying to do too is like, you know, none of us can see the future, but this code will live on. And so if we set up something as a benefit now and it evens itself out, where do we go with that? And, and I just wanted to interject that since it was brought up once that the steering committee, I think we need to keep our eyes on that issue as we go along so we can come up with <laughs> So we make sure a non-exclusive a non-exclusive list of what our current values are for community benefits and then it can adapt as we go but we need something better than what we have now. Let's go forward we will come back to the mixed use question okay so in uh, commercial our commercial goals um, are pretty specific so require compatible transitions from commercial development to other land uses. And so this um, table comes out of plan 2040 and it tells us the various commercial types, um, the plan level required, appropriate site location, a typical site size, the locational criteria and the maximum retail square footage, um, probably which was driven by some of the CC districts. Um, so we have, we have some very specific instructions to work from, um, from the plan. And um, we have gotten 
still not a ton of feedback on the commercial. You guys have given us the most robust conversation on commercial as part of mixed use right here. Um, the, the other piece I would throw in um, to the conversation is um, brick and mortar commercial feels uncertain right now. Um, we, you know, at least in planning world, we're all having these conversations about, we don't know post COVID what's gonna be, could just go back to where it was. Um, shopping as our national pastime could become something different because um, most of us, many of us switched to online shopping. And what does that mean? Um, in terms of retail, um, there are obviously other commercial goods that I'm um, not covering here. So I think we just wanted to um, kind of anchor everybody in this piece of information. Um, and we may be coming back to it, particularly in design standards, because as we're talking about um, commercial site design, uh, commercial location, commercial access, that's where a lot of this is going to pick up. Anybody look through this in the plan and think I have great ideas for how this needs to go in the code? Um, or is this something that we're gonna need to refer back to a few times so we don't get the hang of what it's supposed to be doing? Tell me more about commercial strip because I know that there were some things in our code that didn't, that were trying to avoid commercial strips. Yeah, is that, I think that's the district that had the um, very specific instructions about you could only square off, mm -hmm. um, which was the first time I had seen that. I, was, I thought that was um, <coughs> interesting in an interesting way. Um, and so we want to look at commercial strip a few different ways. If we, Drew, can you go back one? Thank you. Um, retention and redevelopment. So, um, some of the older strips, um, probably you're seeing them go from A space to B space to C space to whatever. If you want to open your D&D &D store and play games in here all day, that's totally fine with us. And um, so what we're seeing in some other communities is um, a look at that space um, to say, could we make it residential? Um, is there an opportunity for a teardown and redevelopment here? Um, what we're seeing um, in some communities is um, a recognition that it can be part of mixed use. Um, so we can take away some of the dividing lines between here's the residential and here's the commercial and they can mix more. Um, a little challenging if you don't um, do some upgrades and changes to the commercial center, um, to the strip center. But, um, you know, I, I, would hazard a guess that commercial strip in that form isn't the design that's going to be desired, at least in the near future. So I think just switching up that district and moving away from how hard it is to do anything or redo anything in it and looking at it in its context, which is kind of a more type by site thing, um, to say, you know, you can have some horizontal mixed use here. And here's how we can see some of that happen might encourage some redevelopment. Right now, I would imagine it's pretty locked down. Um, it's, it's hard to redevelop if you can only do just a little bit here and there. Um, what I understand from talking um, with some of our conversations with staff is some of them have just become nice parking lots with some structure around it. So that's kind of my thought, but what do you guys think about what's on site and what's your specific thought there? Well, my concern was um, we've gotten ourselves in trouble several times when we've done zoning before platting 
And so 23rd Street is a great example because it was a lot of residential lots and they decided, oh, 20, the traffic is increasing on 23rd Street. We should make this commercial. And they zoned it commercial, but everybody had their own um, access point. And then all of a sudden, your lot was worth something. So the same thing happened in the Orient neighborhood when they said, oh, let's do this residential dormitory. But they didn't plat a lot large enough for a dormitory. So everybody got... Um, an increase in the density. So I don't know how you ever back out of that, but I think understanding how you got into it helps us. So when I was thinking of commercial strip, I think of 23rd Street more than like the malls or yeah. something like that. I yeah. think it's gonna be easier to develop Castle and 19th in the malls than it is to say, what do we ever do with um, 23rd Street and yeah. I see some um, really great images. No. <laughs> Maybe, Brody, this is um, something that we'll put in the image book. Um, it's commercial strips converted um, to partial housing, partial commercial. Um, and so there's, there's one from California that has a taco place in it, which we think there should be more taco places in Lawrence. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but they like, you know, popped up a second story on part of it, left um, commercial on part of it, and we're able to redo the site. That goes back to the conversation that we've been having with our groups, though, about like what's it going to take to get some redevelopment going. Um, so let's come up with some um, things that could happen and then make sure we can regulate to that point. And I was thinking 23rd Street also. So I think that's part of what we've all been talking about. And also, I'd add just because I knew it's coming next is parking requirements. Parking requirement. <laughs> we have a whole, we have some really spots with really big parking lots that we should be encouraging that they redevelop the parking lots. So, mixed use work. Well, and do parking in the next level. Um, but just as a preview and uh, part of the teaser that we'll probably put out in the community, we're going to recommend reduced parking requirements. We want to have a conversation about eliminating more parking requirements and letting developers say this is what we think we need. And there's maybe a conversation about um, parking maximums for big boxes so they don't have Christmas parking. Um, they only need like flag day parking. Anyone. I don't know how many people shop flag day, but um, <laughs> that'll, that'll be part of where we go um, and engage the community in that um, next step of the drafting. Let's go ahead and more. So industrial, we have our industrial meeting tomorrow morning and we're hoping to get um, some feedback. Um, and so we know that um, Lawrence has um, some industrial going and is um, of a mindset that it's important to the community and you want to do that. And um, the plan speaks to the different intensity of um, industrial development. And so, um, you can see, unlike some of the other categories, industrial is a city and a county thing. And so we've, you know, gone in and looked at the city districts um, that, that will be carried forward. So um, this kind of like medium heavy range. Um, we pointed out last time, I think that um, we're recommending um, retiring the IEP. And just for everyone who might listen to this later and for the group, all that means is that everything that's um, industrial business part it's to stay, it's conforming, nobody loses any rights, but you can't rezone another property to it. So it goes off the books at some point in time. 
um, because there are a mix of uses in there that might be better handled through different districts. And so then property owners can rezone if they want to, um, or the city can uh, go in and proactively rezone if that will encourage the development the city wants to see. So we don't have a lot of feedback um, about this particular category and don't have a ton of change um, in this particular category. So does anyone want to speak to industrial or should we go ahead and keep going? I would only say that I think there's, I mean, the uses of industrial, you know, um, we have to make sure we're keeping up on the times, I guess, on that. I mean, you know, I mean, we a lot of the industrial stuff, you know, is really just an office building with maybe making something, but not the same industrial like. They're back of the office. Yeah. They're possibly doing something, maybe inside. Maybe nobody even knows or cares what they're up to, as long as it's roughly legal. Yeah, exactly. So you know, when we talk about you know commercial office, you know, if someone wants to come in and bring in you know forty engineers to design stuff, and then they have three people in the back building something or testing something, and we say, well, that's an industrial use. You have to go there. We want to make sure we're like, understanding the impacts. Flexible. Yeah. Understanding the impacts and making sure we're not forcing too much into industrial and maybe defining it more by impacts than we do by output. Right. Yep. Yeah. By those older classification lists. How do you do that over time, though, Brad? What? If ownership of that structure changes and the zoning remains, how do you reevaluate the impact of what moves in? Well, that's what I'm saying. It's that you leave the industrial to the impact side of it. But if someone, like I said, wants 40 engineers and three people making something, the, that if you can somehow define, you know, less than 10% of or whatever, or no noise, or no whatever, you know, defined by the impact. So I've seen in some other places. I, I like that idea. It's, yeah. it's the next owner. What happens when they still have the same zoning? Well, yeah, but I was saying, what I'm saying is the reverse, which is that would be zoned commercial office. This is an office zoning, but we allow inside office okay. a larger thing. Right now, Sometimes our code says, well, if you're going to make anything, you have to be industrial. Right. And it's within you. Yeah. So I'm saying that we vote. Let's make sure our office is big enough or our commercial is broad enough that we can put some light impact in there. I agree with you. So we're, what's industrial has to be industrial. Okay. So basically what we're doing is we're limiting the use by our kind of expanded use zoning yeah. So it can't turn into a heavier use. Yeah. It would have to drop back into exactly. commercial. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that's an accessory use. Yeah, you would say yeah. you would say you can have 10% of your area an accessory use. Or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like yep. Anybody else? What if somebody wants to do some manufacturing in the backyard of the residential district? 
So class B home occupations that happen to be, I think there's cottage industries is what is listed as here. I thought it was interesting that those were only allowed in very sparse um, residential districts and not anywhere else, especially because the definition specifically mentioned stuff like candle making. Like there's no way that has got to be a disruptive thing in an apartment building, right? Like, do we really need to limit it to just the farm country? So right now it needs light industrial. Tallow candles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, yeah. Thank you. Mm. So, and same question, um, just about home occupations in general. Um, we want to be um, fairly permissive with home occupations. I think maybe we learned during COVID that it's not that bad to have almost everybody at home. I had a question about home occupations in general, and this is on the, the module online, but I figured I'd bring it up for everybody. Is there a national definition of class A or type A and type B? Or is that just something that we call it here? It's a Lawrence thing. Okay. So if so. Communities that do something very similar, but yeah. those are usually homegrown regulations. So if that's the case, type A, like if you'll read the definition, it's literally just like what people normally do. Like I'm going to work out of my home. I'm going to sell things online out of my home. It's weird that we even define that. It's just, it is what it is, right? So it seems like we could probably just call it home occupations and regulate the stuff that actually is a little bit more interesting than just selling like goes out of your basement. And um, I think what that... After I read through it, I realized, you know, there are some actually pretty sweet permissions here that are more progressive and kind of take the uh, the learnings from COVID into account. But there are other ones that are kind of odd, like no outdoor anything at all ever. I'm like, did we forget the first five months of COVID entirely? Like everything had to be outdoor, right? seems like we should maybe allow that a little bit. Or things like context insensitive uh, visiting hours. You know, it's very different if you have a quiet cul-de-sac in an R1 and people visiting at all hours of the day. That's kind of rude. But if you're in a fairly vibrant apartment complex or in a much more dense part of the city. Who's even going to notice, right? So I think there was a lot of ones that are very detailed. Hmm? What do you say? They'll start to say too many people going in and out of that apartment quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some guy wrote in the Florence Times today about you know, um, if you, uh, you if, what's the difference between fixing your car in your driveway and you know, paying someone's driver car, you know, or fixing your lawnmower in your garage versus paying somebody like should be the same. You'd think, right? Yeah, it's a good time. I don't know who that would have been. <laughs> One would happen a lot more times, and so that's yeah, you know, like you can have a garage sale, but if you have a garage sale at your house every Saturday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, then all of a sudden that does impact the neighborhood differently <laughs> than if you you're having your garage sale. Yeah. And I think the frequency can be context oh, yeah. sensitive too. So. Okay, let's pick on this. Um, we have a few more things we have to cover, so let's go next slide. We kind of talked about everything. Let's do next slide. Um, so these were some of the questions from our last meeting um, that we just wanted to circle back on. Um, so we went ahead and did, um, did show in the new draft ADUs in... Um, I think all districts except the R5 um, by right. And my thinking on that was R5 um, could be high density, but should be high density, but it didn't occur to me that someone might do townhomes in an R5 and those could have an ADU. So we'll go back and make that edit. Um, I think we talked this one through today, so we're good. Um, in terms of the use table, so um, we, we find that, um, Communities either love looking at the use table and moving everything around to make it perfect, or they do not want to look at it. It is not your job as the steering committee to line edit the use table. Um, 
However, if you glance over it and notice that you'd like to see uses change, we'd love to clear about that um, or, you know, allowed in more places, allowed in fewer places. Um, I, I think I want to clarify there, even though we're not asking you to line edit the code, we are um, definitely looking for detailed conversations when you're ready to have them. So um, in the same way that we talked about the dimensions, we haven't talked as much about what's going on in the use table. Um, so please feel free to take a look at it. You can comment on the online one, um, or you can just um, pull together comments and um, send them to Jeff or Becky and they'll get forwarded. We're gonna have a conversation about gas stations. Um, this is this is kind of a um, development sustainability change question, and we thought we'd explore it um, with you. We as a uh, as a you know nation these days, we we're pretty generous with where we allow gas stations, um, and we have all our um, manufacturer major car manufacturers um, moving towards something electric. And so it could be, um, despite Brody explaining to me that electric cars um, are very heavy and they will be taking up, um, making a lot of damage in the roads. That's a different problem. What do we think will happen to gas stations as we switch to electric vehicles? And is there is this kind of a um, category that we want to think about going forward? Um, what could happen? They have. Many of them have really primo locations, right? They like to be on that corner of the interchange. They've got good access. Um, I don't know that it's likely that they'll just pull out the, um, the gas tanks and switch to electric because we'll be doing some of that at home and some of it at work. Um, so just as a future thinking sort of exercise, I wanted to see, you know, what will happen to gas stations over the next 20 years? And what do you think? Um, how many quaint cafes can we put into gas stations after they go? I'm um, recognizing um, that that's possibly an equity question because not everybody will move to an electric car. They are currently expensive. They will continue to be expensive. Um, and um, for people for whom buying a new car is out of reach, um, driving a gas car will probably be a thing they do for some time. So, so change and something that will still be necessary. What do you think? I'll start out because I am delighted to have an electric car, yeah. but that's because I have a garage Absolutely. and I can um, use, you know, do it overnight at home. So the other big question about electric cars is how do people who live in an apartment building or live in a older, um, rental property have any access to that. It's not going to be gas stations because nobody's going to want to go and plug in and wait for, you know, the two or three, I mean, takes 30 minutes, even if it's fast, you know? So, um, so I think we are going to continue to have gas stations. I think we're not going to have a lot more being built. Right. Yeah, um, unless they're big ones like Casey's. Or I think Casey's is like maxed out. Yeah, but I, we're not going to get... Casey's will just convert to like pizza sales. Sale. <laughs> but I, I don't think neighborhood gas stations are gone. I mean, Lawrence has had too many problems with those as it is. One on 6th Street, there's still a monitoring well 
from years ago in place, even though now it's turned into a restaurant. Um, another one at 19th and Mass is site planning for another drive-through coffee shop. I mean, how many of those are we going to get? But, uh, but those things are dangerous to have in, in neighborhoods. Yeah, but so we see most of them along where they are now. I don't think we're going to see them expand much unless it's out in a big vacant field at the moment that's going to build around it. Mm -hmm. But we aren't building them next to houses so much, except for on 6th Street with Casey's, which replaced a gas station or used car lot. I can't remember which. But that's zoned for that right now. But I think they're just a menace. They're an incubator for new restaurants. <laughs> or shops. Yes. Drive through restaurants. You know, I'm going to say KDHE is, I think, trying to do a good job of monitoring what's happening. We have much better regulations on the tanks. Yeah. Um, so. Just a couple of thoughts. Yeah. Um, one, I don't think the conversation should be limited to cars, but also include bikes, yeah. um, electric bikes, which have a similar need um, yeah. in terms of access to energy, yeah. um, are increasing as you travel around to, to larger cities, particularly overseas. Electric bikes and, and even things like scooters are everywhere and growing fast and terribly dangerous, but another subject. Um, and I think to me that that makes me think about not so much the specifics of a gas station, but how do we need to be thinking about broad access to power, broad access to that capability for anyone, including that where it might be an equity issue where they might not, their their access, their, their needs might be a little bit different than mainstream. And how do we accommodate that? How do we provide for the community, um, not just at a, at a location? And then lastly, you know, specific to gas stations, um, my sense is that from a technology perspective, the the uh, the need to get at a, a rapid charge sufficient to let you get from where you're going, it's going to be the same as the need to get at gas. And that technology will continue to evolve and some central place where that happens. And maybe it happens you know, all at the same place, both whatever your electric needs are and whatever your uh, fossil fuel needs are come in that same place. I guess what I'm saying is I don't see that going away anytime soon. I think it I think it changes. Yeah. So maybe reducing the gas footprint portion of it, but filling that out with um gas charging. And providing a path by thinking about it in advance to to enable it, not just to allow it, but to enable it, maybe even encourage it, could be a benefit to the whole community as well. Well, does anyone in our group know? Um, so in Colorado, we just did a funky thing. We passed um, emergency changes to the energy code that are going to require um, automobile EV charging stations to go in as each community updates their building code. But I was under the impression that the next round of building codes of 20, what, 2025, 2028, 2024 mm -hmm. has um, some basic EV requirements in it. And I could understand that incorrectly. I have not seen the 24 code yet. I don't think it's been fully released. I don't know if that's in there yet or okay. not. Because I, I would think some of this will evolve through building code. Um, or energy code since it is um, electricity. But what, what we want to think of in terms of is space and location, right? So if I'm you know driving through and didn't get to charge my car last night, 
like a husband I might be married to who forgets to charge his phone overnight <laughs> and has to plug it in in his car might, you know, might need that. Maybe not though, because, you know, we're also seeing, you know, um, shopping malls putting them in or grocery stores putting them in. So we'll see where that goes. But the bigger picture right now is bicycles. I, you know, here now bicycles can be uh, a bigger issue and we could go ahead and put infrastructure to secure bikes, to secure e-bikes, to secure, um, to, to make bicycles more uh, prevalent and relevant into the development of these so when we areas. do the infrastructure for e-bikes, and I have to confess I've been more merged in the cars than the e-bikes, but I won't make myself more knowledgeable. Is it something that the city would provide as part of thinking? Where would we do that? I guess my first question is where, who and where would um, bike EV charging go? From what I've seen, they can you can just plug them in in just a regular outlet. outlet. So it could be just as simple as a bollard with some outlets in it that you can secure the bikes. And that could charge your cell phone and your bike or whatever else. Okay. And we have heard that um, upping the um, bicycling infrastructure in Lawrence will help with the bicycling, commuting, and transportation in Lawrence. That it's the infrastructure, just in terms of parking or charging, is iffy. And it's hard to... Um, predictably go from place to place and know that you can store your bike or uh, charge your bike. So that has come up across multiple conversations over the last couple of days. I think I also mentioned this morning that one of our employees wrote a segue to work and he's been, ever since he started, he's been doing that. And I saw a gal in my neighborhood on a segue passing out flyers. I'm like, it's the deal with segways. <laughs> They're reselling them from like Las Vegas tours. <laughs> okay, so so we've got um, kind of a future thinking conversation. Let's do next slide. So let's just do some basics here. Um, when you reviewed module one, did you find it readable? Were you able to make sense of it? Um, were there any notes that you scribbled to yourself? Like, you know, see if they just turned this like eight pages of text into one table, this would be better or need an image here. And you don't have to tell me anything off the top of your head. I realize I'm putting everyone on the spot, but um, that's all feedback we'd like to have. One of the things that we're getting at is a user-friendly code. I thought it was fairly easy and readable, but I also feel like this might be a relatively self-selected group of people who are interested in zoning and already kind of are familiar with it. There's maybe a couple of us who are new to it, but I guess I'm more curious from your perspective, how have people who have just kind of come into the various events talked about it? Have they expressed confusion in how it's organized or general understanding? I don't think we've gotten, we have a few people who clearly um, read it and have specific thoughts about it. We have a lot more listening and idea sharing going on right now and questions about what's gonna happen if this thing takes place. Um, so I think that once we finish getting comments um, within the code itself, that will tell us what the clarity level was because people will flag stuff that doesn't make sense mm -hmm. um, and we'll know to clean that up. Okay. But we just wanted to make sure that 
as a group, this is going to be one of our questions for you every single time. And because, you know, because if it doesn't make sense to you as code nerds, it is definitely not going to make sense to other people. And um, you, um, you have to go fairly far, very far to hurt our feelings on something like that. If it doesn't work, even if it's worked in other communities, if it doesn't work here, it doesn't work here, right? And we're drafting a code for the warrants. So we're, we're open to the comments. I think it was just um, an overload for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, because of 230 pages. So they just said, I know I'm supposed to go look at this, but I don't even know where to start. So I think... Um, with module two, it might be good to have the module and say, these are 10 things that we want you to think about, and you can find them on pages. Okay. You know, okay. That's 232. Yeah. So that so that they can say, oh, I'm interested in this. This is where I'm gonna go. And um, I'm gonna go back really quickly to the ADUs because I think you can say are ADUs allowed everywhere. And then we should ask other questions like, um, how would you feel if it had to be owner-occupied? Can it be developed anywhere? Is there a reason to have both? You know, so if you're in an area where everything's rental, it just feels like, oh, people are going to just try to get, you know, more units on their lot. Um, if it's and you're and you're not going to have anybody who's got their mother-in-law coming to stay. Right. So, so just expanding a little bit those questions. Okay, leaving it less open-ended. Mm -hmm. um, read it. Good luck. But instead, <laughs> saying, okay, we want to direct you to some of this, and if you come up with other stuff, let us know what you right. Think. Right. Okay. Okay. I might be saying similar things, but you know that I, I thought it was well done, clear, easy to read, but. Um, if you're not, if you don't bring your own ideas, your own context to it, it's just tougher to understand what it's saying. So having context and scenarios um, is what makes that come alive for people. Okay. Hard to do that, that much. Yeah. That's from someone at, you know, 232 pages is a light planning commission. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Easy read. Next okay. So, um, so, okay. One of the things um, that we can do with module two then is um, give the instructions and then as we go to the public, we can share that same set of instructions with them um, and say, this is what we're reading from what we're looking at. That's helpful. Let's go to the next slide. Okay, so um, there's more, just in case, listen enough. So um, we've got more meetings tomorrow. Um, and then we've got two virtual meetings. So if you bump into anybody that wasn't able to make it um, to one of the live meetings and wanted to talk about it, we're going to do, um, I believe, a morning meeting on the 28th and an afternoon meeting on the 31st. So that's a Friday and a Monday. Um, and we'll just um, kind of do open mic. So whoever wants to drop in and talk about anything, um, those times are available also. We're going to update the Planning Commission on the 26th. Um, so, meeting in a box um, is almost rewritten um, and uh, is going to become less about character areas and more about explore your neighborhood. We talked about this a little bit. Um, the holdup is entirely me uh, at this point in time. So, um, I have already nominated uh, Brody as my accountability buddy for a variety of things. So, this is grown on the list. 
Um, so we'll, we will get that out for the conversation about what goes on in the neighborhoods. Um, for next steps, we, before we moved on to module two, we wanted to make sure that the group was comfortable, that we've had the conversations we want to have about module one. And we didn't know if you'd want to do an August meeting on module one, or if you want to hold up. Um, and then as soon as we have completed staff draft review of module two, we'll move into that. Right, um, I think Brad, I would go with whatever the group's pleasure is. We would do another meeting virtually, um, but we can all still get together if you guys want to talk about it more. Well, I've, I've obviously what the group wants. I've heard a lot of people say kind of like some others, which is uh, I, I kind of get module one, but until I know, until I see module two, I don't have, you know, mm -hmm. I'm okay with do, you know, they want to see what the parking requirements are and what the designs are and all that before they feel if they're real comfortable talking more about module one. So I would kind of say, you know, I think we build on ourselves. So let's talk about module two. And while we're talking about module two, we're going to be referring back to module one. Okay. might have more comments on it as we contextualize it with module two. But I'm okay having another meeting on module one if others think they need that at the moment. I think I've heard the same thing that you have, that let's build on it. And, and yeah. it's really, you know, the density and what are the parking standards going to be and what do these things look like before we just say, oh, that's... I agree. More details so yeah. we can have better conversation about what we did today. Okay. Anything else? Okay. Um, so we will um, get it to staff get it cleaned up and get it out. And um, it's late July. So I think we'd look for maybe an early mid-September meeting um, to do module two and then do the two together absolutely correctly because the more you know, the more you want to backtrack and say, yeah, oh, now I understand what's going to happen with this. I would certainly encourage the committee members again because we're all a little more into this to go on to that the online code and put your notes in there. And yet, you know, let's get those out there and get, you know, those specific ones. We've been talking big picture, but if, you know, on uses and other things, get in there and make your comments. I think that would be useful. You want in the weeds kind of comments? I think you're ready yeah. for, yeah. You can disagree with our use of adverbs or adjectives or <laughs> not like the fact that we... You can't you can't comment on the numbering system. We inherited that. That's <laughs> um, so yeah. So I think you mentioned at a previous meeting, maybe in the one yesterday, that when it comes to comments that are kind of cut and dry, like I think we should do this, then I think you were saying if there isn't any obvious objection, like okay, we'll just change it for the next one. But I, I suspect there's going to be a couple of comments. I know at least a couple of mine are probably kind of more controversial that aren't as cut and dry. I say like yeah, I'll follow up on that. Sure. Um, for, for ones where there may need to be a discussion before we decide on something, what is the appropriate venue to do that? Like, just as an example, I think the dimensional standards could maybe be changed a little bit or relaxed a little bit to more fit in with Plan 2040. But, I mean, I, can, I commented on that on the draft, but, you know, it, you guys aren't the be-all, end-all in deciding exactly what this is because, you, well, you wouldn't want, <laughs> you wouldn't want the blowback when somebody says, like, wait, why did you decide that? Oh, because Nick Kuzmiak said it was a cool idea. Like, why would you listen to him? So, yeah. yeah. All this guy complained. I think you're on track. That is the kind of thing that we would bring back to the group. 
Um, and so we'll, we will summarize the comments. We were uh, talking to Jeff and Becky today about how they handled the um, comments on Plan 2040 because we thought taking a similar approach um, would be something the community might expect to see. Yeah. Um, so we will pull and read all the comments um, and we will we will only pick up those comments that are so simple, like you double type the here. Yeah. It, we don't, we really don't want to own this. We want to be able to do what the community wants to see. Mm -hmm. So um, if it is in, if it is in alignment with plan 2040 or the downtown plan or some other plan, but it's a big change, we're going to bring it back to you guys. Um, and so that will be part of our next discussion. I'm going to wrap that up. Thank you. Um, if it is, lost in space somewhere or just an excellent idea that is in the wrong time or in the wrong location, um, we'll probably still bring it forward. Um, and, you know, with our thoughts that this isn't, you know, implementing the plan or any of the instructions we have, but, you know, in many ideas that seem just kind of out there to start with, there's a seed of something useful in there. So we want to make sure that you're able to have a discussion about it. Someone with a different perspective um, then the group members might bring a really good idea to us. So um, on the whole, there will be a bucket of comments for us to work through on module one. Um, we can probably get module two going and out to the public and then back up and deal with module one comments while we're leaving module two out to the public. Yeah. And so kind of do that timing on all three modules. Yeah. Sounds like a really good plan. What is the projected release date for Module 2 beyond the staff release date for, when you say public, do you mean the steering committee? Steering committee first. Okay. And we will do it the same way we did Module 1. So steering committee gets it first, gives us um, some basic guidance and instructions for things that need to go forward or further or be pulled back. We do some quick revisions and then it goes to the public. Took us about a week and a half to turn it around after the last meeting, weeks. Um, so um, let's say um, we get it realistically to um, planning staff um, next week, um, give them a moment to get through the couple hundred pages um, that it's going to take them to do that. Um, so three weeks for turnaround on that. We're in mid-August at that point. Um, we need probably a week or two um, to go back through to do cleanups to talk to staff one more time about what they're doing. So that's how we get to uh, an early September meeting for this group on Module 2. Then you give us your changes, one more cleanup, so public sees it um, mid-September. Okay. Would be about when that would go out. Sound realistic? It's us through those last-minute August vacations, and we can come in and sit down and do some more work. And I want to thank everyone for being here. Um, again, just a few weeks later after our last meeting. Got anything else? Okay, this is what we've been up to. Um, we have a drop-in meeting after our meeting tonight. And so for the drop-ins, we haven't given anyone a specific topic. Um, they can come in and ask about anything. Um, I think if we have uh, one, one or two drop-ins this afternoon, two drop-ins this afternoon. Um, and so... On, um, on the whole, the amount of information as your consultants were walking away with is fantastic um, and helps us move this forward. So we'll finish out um, tomorrow with a roundtable on industrial and special districts and then our brown bag work on equity. Our equity discussion to date 
have not been as robust as our housing and sustainability discussion. So we're gonna dig a little deeper um, and see who else um, we can get in touch with, who else we wanna to talk to um, to get that part of the conversation going. If you guys have suggestions for that and could share with Jeff and Becky for outreach, we'd love that. Um, and then the two virtual meetings. So those will be, um, they'll be on the city Zoom, the Zoom city teams, they Zoom. We'll have that posted on the website. Um, it may be on there now. Yes. Questions about any of this? No? Okay. Next slide. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Really, really. Um, we, you know, we asked you to rehash uh, module one and pick up some of these pieces tonight. And um, our conversation is getting deeper each time. And so we benefit from you guys being willing to sit here and talk about things that are part of your lives. So thank you. So, okay. Um, we'll go get all our crafting promise because otherwise we're going to get on me. And um, we'll uh, get some um, educational stuff started and um, perhaps bounce that off of everybody by emails um, over the next few weeks, see what you think about it, and go from there. Lots of questions. There's something. Can I say something? Just a couple. Can you want to say something? Sure, very fine. I guess, like, um, with the module one, and I obviously don't have a clue other than just coming into meetings, but when we were talking about light industrial and allowing um, certain things going on, I think that's probably where the public's going to look at the ADU part, where, um, you know, we're human we're driving our own selves to extinction, um, noise pollution, light pollution, quality of life issues, people working from home, what the noise um, light issues will be. I mean, there's ordinances in place for noise, um, but the police aren't going to be able to come and handle all of that. So I think it's just boils down to a quality of life and um, what people want around them. And not everyone is going to be a homeowner, not because you know it's out of reach financially, but it's just they're not going to be. So it's just a fine balance. Um, and I just think pollution on all levels need to be taken into consideration. And I don't think it has anything to do with people don't want change. I think we're just looking forward and ahead of what is our quality of life going to look like down the line when everything's gone. And you can always put in concrete, right? So. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I want to say thanks for being here and being willing to speak in the room full of experts. Thank you. Um, I think we actually touched on a few things um, tonight that got wrapped up into your comments, and we love hearing from you because this is part of what, like, how do we get other people to come talk about this? So thank you. And um, that's really good. Okay, thank you all. I just want to follow up on what Mr. Kuzmiak brought up earlier about Strong Town. And that they, as you said, we can't run particular specific numbers on any given project. But if Strong Towns has come up with general overall cost benefit analysis from other statistical examples, it seems important that that, to me, is kind of a pivotal question this whole process that the way the code is currently drafted, just like the smart code, density is optional. A developer doesn't have to choose to do that. 
mean, the way that, that the zones currently are drawn up, um, not all, all of it requires density or mixed use. So it seems to me that going forward, if we want to achieve density, like as Kay pointed out, um, it's gonna, first of all, it's gonna have to be profitable for the developer. If it's profitable, more, more so than not doing density, they will choose to do it to make more money. I mean, this is a market economy. Um, and yeah, I mean, bringing something in as mixed use, kind of like Phil pointed out, sends that signal, but still it doesn't require anything. Um, I think it's going to be important. To, when I talk about the cost benefit, I think it's it's much broader. It includes um, the increased valuation of the land, which produces more tax revenues. Um, the mid-month meeting last week, the consultant pointed that out. Um, it increases the tax revenue for the city potentially increases the return on investment for the developer. Um, a more compact development has potentially smaller, less concrete asphalt, less electric use for smaller pump stations, that kind of thing. Um, a number of different factors that I don't know, and maybe it's a $100 consultant who can run those numbers, but it seems important that we have a handle on those numbers. Um, if a developer can see that there's there's good potential there, and I don't know if if they're willing to share those numbers of what their um, return is, the percent. If it's twenty percent, like Mr. Richardson pointed out last week, or if it's more or less, I don't even know if they're willing to share that so that we can run those numbers. But it just seems important. It's for the whole question. I think there'd be some industry information out there. Um, Lawrence is not terribly unique from other communities out there with the same kind of question. I, I just wonder if maybe there's some industry info that could be had that would inform that. I want to jump in and pump the brakes on this discussion. Um, we, as your consultant, don't have instructions to watch this pass, and it is definitely a policy choice. Um, so if this is something the city wants to see, we we'll probably want to pass this up to Planning Commission and City Commission and have them give us some input on whether or not this is a place they want to go. I am a fan of strong towns, but they aren't giving us the entire picture here. Um, other types of development, the uh, industrial development and commercial development, have uh, higher than 100% return on their use of infrastructure. So they, in some regards, offset yeah. um, the residential. It's it is a good conversation. What are we paying for in terms of infrastructure? How are we using it? Is critical to how the city functions and budgets, um, but is at the moment above our pay grade. So if this is a conversation we wanna pursue um, and I will look at our chairperson, then we probably wanna feed it back up the pipeline and see what kind of instruction we get. Well, we've had, you know, we can talk more about that. We've definitely had those discussions about that. And, 
you know, we ran we ran some numbers, you know, if if the the new development, the new single family development by Rock Chalk, you know, with five hundred and fifty thousand dollar homes on very small lots. Pencils out very well that it pays for itself. Um, if all those were two hundred thousand dollar lot, two hundred thousand dollar houses, they would not pay for themselves. And you have a question of what's more important: having two hundred thousand dollar houses that people can afford that don't pay for themselves, or five hundred fifty thousand dollar houses that pay for themselves. And those are different questions that have a lot of policy implications that you're not just answering the one question. Um, and so yeah. I think I think we all agree. I think you know density and developers, if they can do it in ways that they think they can sell them and they think they have the the ability, like dimensional standards, setbacks, things like that, that they can get more in there and sell it. I think they go. I mean, I, I think it's much more natural that they will do that. And that's why we have to, that's what this code can make those changes. I mean, Phil was here last time saying he doesn't care what the density is. He wants to know <laughs> when the setbacks are. That's what defines how many houses he can get. And then that defines how much money he can make. And that defines how many houses they'll build. So um, I, I, I agree with a lot of that. So, so but Brad, if I could add, that frame there, that framework is single dwelling concept. If we have more multi-dwelling, there's more units per acre or the given infrastructure that's required. Absolutely. That changes the numbers there too. And again, to allow that, to allow that, I think is because right now we tell somebody you either get to build single family or you don't get to build single family. We don't say you can build a single family with a duplex next to it, with four houses next to it, with a with a fourplex on the corner. I mean, our code doesn't allow that. I mean, yeah. that's what we need this code to allow. Do that. Yeah. yeah. And, and if that allows them to be um, flexible and dense, I think that is where, we want, I mean, to me, that's, that's why I wanted to see the code go to allow that and allow those mixed uses and, and you know, the coffee shop on the corner with two apartments above it, with a duplex next to it, with a single family home next to that. Maybe you uh, in the backyard in the shop. Yeah. Bicycle repair shop. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> So, okay. 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 We've now got to six. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, public. Thank you. That's just it.